Let's turn to Galatians chapter 6. And we're going to read from verse 6 to verse 10. Verse 6. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Holy One of Israel, we thank you this morning for your incredible goodness to us. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have expressed that love in the most remarkable way. Father, I pray that as we turn our minds to the scriptures that you inspired so long ago that are so relevant for us now, I pray, Lord, that you would instruct us and teach us and rebuke our false ways of thinking and correct us and guide us that we might have renewed minds, Lord, and be transformed. Father, help us to not just go along with the stream and the flow of life and do things as we've always done them. But I pray, Lord, that we would learn to live the lives that you've given to us in the way that you intend for us to live, Lord, and in light of the truth that we know as Christians. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for caring to listen. And thank you that you're in control. We commit this time to you, Father, and we pray that you would be honored and that we would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been discussing how walking by the Spirit affects communities. That's what we've been looking at. How walking by the Spirit affects communities. And you'll recall that Paul has given us, as we've been looking at in Galatians here in this latter section, Paul has been giving us the foundational exhortation for our Christian lives. And he gives it to us in verse 16 of chapter 5. Walk by the Spirit. That is the foundational exhortation for our Christian lives. Walk by the Spirit. Now, when he says walk by the Spirit, of course, he's not talking about physical walking, but he's talking about setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. And we talked about that. So one is not walking by the Spirit unless you are setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. What are the things of the Spirit? The things of the Spirit are the things above, the things of Christ. Uh, the, the Bible talks about walking according to the new creation. That is, seeing who you are in truth before God. So if you, if you get up in the morning and, and your mind is filled with 
oh, I'm such a bad person, and and that's true, right? (laughs) But you're thinking, but that's how God sees me, and he's disappointed with me, and I, I better do good things today to get on God's good side. You are not walking by the Spirit. You're walking by the Spirit when you fill your mind with the fact that you are in Christ at the right hand of God. You are blameless before him, not because of any works that you've done, but because of the salvation that God has given you in Christ, and that God is delighted in you. God is happy with you. You are blameless, a blameless child of his through Jesus. And there's two ways we can walk, Paul tells us. We can walk by the flesh, that is in the old creation, thinking only of things apart from Christ, or we can walk by the Spirit in the new creation, filling our minds with the things of Christ. And Paul tells us these ways of walking produces two different results. Paul's primary focus, though, in in chapters 5 and 6, is the results of these ways of walking on communities, on relationships between people. That's what he's primarily interested in. So if you want to have bad relationships with people, just walk in the flesh. You'll you'll be judgmental, you'll be depressed, because God's ticked off at you, so you'll be ticked off at everybody. That's what you'll think. The question I asked last week was this, and I'm going to ask it again this week. What would a community look like if its members were all walking by the Spirit? What would a Spirit-filled community look like? And last week I drew five marks or characteristics of a Spirit-filled community from verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6, and here they are just in brief. First of all, a Spirit-filled community would be a restorative community. That is, it's a community where when sin happens, uh, amputation doesn't take place, restoration takes place. Sin and its destructiveness doesn't have the last word, but forgiveness and healing. Second of all, a spirit-filled community responds to sin. There's no dichotomy between loving your neighbor and rebuking them. Uh, and, and often we think that, well, if I really care for them, I'll just let it slide and turn a blind eye. But a spirit-filled community, when it sees a member hurting or it sees a member sinning, we think, oh, they're sinning. That means they're not walking by the Spirit. That means they're not seeing things as they should and they need restoration. Thirdly, a spirit-filled community responds to sin in gentleness. You'll remember we talked about that last week, in gentleness. And that is because we take sin seriously. Because first of all, responding to sin in our community in gentleness is an effective way of responding to sin. How many of you have ever responded to sin not in gentleness? And you often find that you need to clean up a mess after you do that, right? And the other reason why we respond to sin in gentleness is because we are ourselves aware that we are not better at all than the person who has sinned. That's something I could have done, and even though I didn't do it, that person is not worse than I am. Uh, I'm not better than they are. Our only hope is in Christ. And so we don't respond heavy-handed. Fourthly, a spirit-filled community looks out for and helps one another as Christ did for us. Aren't you glad Christ looked out for you and helped you? And Christ did that for us while we were sinners. And so a spirit-filled community looks out for and helps one another despite the fact we're sinners. And lastly, I mentioned last week that a spirit-filled community has an accurate evaluation of itself. That is, those who are walking by the Spirit realize that they in and of themselves are nothing, but they rejoice that 
The only reason there's something before God is because of what God has done. In and through Christ, we're something. So we have an accurate evaluation of ourselves. This morning, we're just going to keep rolling on. And in the text that we read, I'm going to draw four more marks or characteristics of what a spirit-filled community would look like, but this time out of verses 6 through 10. So four more marks of what a spirit-filled community, when its members are walking by the Spirit and living in that new creation, what does that look like? So first of all, a spirit-filled community values and invests in the instruction of the Word of God. Now, we're going to spend a little bit of time on this. A spirit-filled community values and invests in the instruction of the Word of God. That is, if you look at a spirit-filled community, if you look at a healthy Christian community, you will see them placing a high premium on the Word of God. True or false? Can you be a healthy Christian community if you don't value and invest in and put a high premium on the Word of God? What do you think? No. And the idea in verse 6, and let's look at verse 6. The, Paul says this, The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. The idea here is simply this, that you value the fact that you are being taught the word. You value the fact that you are being taught the word. You esteem that as a precious service, worthy of being remunerated, supported, and perpetuated. That's the idea in verse 6. Paul is not commanding the taught for no good reason to share with the one who teaches. So the idea isn't just do it. Why, why are we sharing with this person? I don't know. Paul said just do it. That's not the idea. There are good reasons why Paul is saying this. Because sharing with the one who teaches is both prop, profitable and proper. And the Bible talks a lot about this, doesn't it? The Bible talks a lot about uh, sharing and supporting with the one who teaches. Now, I approach this verse with sensitivity because I'm aware that when it comes to money and support and ministry, there's a lot of abuse in this world. Would, would you agree? So I, I approach this text with sensitivity because I'm aware for a lot of people, they equate ministry with just filthy lucre. And they equate ministry with just people trying to get rich. And you see a lot of that, especially on TV, a lot of that's being broadcasted. And so those associations are made. And the abuses that come with this, and there are abuses, is nothing new. Luther and Calvin in the, in the 1500s both attacked abuses of the ministry in this regard in their day. There was excessive wealth in the church um, in the times of the Reformation. And priests and ministers in the Catholic Church were extremely wealthy and were taking the money of people. And this actually made them covetous. And it actually, you know, made people want to be priests because that's a, that's a lucrative career, you know. I can get into this career and I just have to learn how to do all the forms and all this. And boys, I can make a lot of money and live well. And so it's, it's ironic that, you know, all this excessive wealth in a place of ministry creates covetousness and perverts the purpose of ministry. And you know, Luther in his commentary on Galatians has a lot of fascinating things to say about this. He, he says this, he used to wonder why the New Testament exhorts people to give money and support to ministers so much. He used to, he used to wonder that. 
He's like, I don't, he didn't like that. He actually thought maybe that was a mistake. Or, you know, I know he, he couldn't be a mistake, but it seems like it. Because in his day, that was just causing so many problems. And he actually thought maybe this isn't good, but why does the New Testament exhort this kind of thing that we see in verse 6? The one who's taught the words to share all good things with the one who teaches him. And there's other verses too. And it wasn't until after the gospel began to spread and Roman Catholicism was routed in Germany that Luther said that he understood, began to understand these exhortations. Because what do you think happened with giving to the ministry uh, after the Reformation spread and after the gospel uh, went forth? It dropped. (laughs) Giving to the church and giving to ministers and giving to the ministry actually dropped to near disappearance after the uh, Reformation. Isn't that interesting? Here's what Luther says, quote, Now, since the gospel hath been preached and published, the preachers thereof be as rich as sometime Christ and his apostles were. <laughs> That's really interesting, isn't it? Now, is that a proof of error? Is that a proof that the Reformation's wrong and preaching of the gospel's wrong? Because some might say that. They look, look how people would give money before you, Luther, came along and Calvin, and you preach righteousness through faith alone. You know, look how people were supportive of the ministry. Now, look, nobody supports the ministry anymore, hardly. Is it proof of error? The answer is no. And the big reason is this. Because the reason why so many people gave money to the church is because of rank superstition and simony. By simony, I mean you're paying for spiritual blessings. You're paying to go to heaven. And this is the reason why not just people in Catholicism back, back in the day or today, or you know, people give lots of money in Islam and uh, Judaism and, and Mormonism, right? People give lots of money in religions all around the world. People give money even in Buddhism and Hinduism. But religions that do not teach salvation by grace through faith alone they make a lot of money precisely because they don't teach salvation by grace through faith alone. And people are giving them money thinking that by doing these good things, they're going to get to heaven and be saved. Christianity teaches salvation by grace. That is undeserved favor. It's not something you work for or earn. Through faith alone, it's not something you have to pay for or do good deeds for. It's simply by trusting in what Christ is. So there's no need to give money to be saved. True? We don't preach you have to give money to be saved. And what happens is when people don't have to, people often don't. And therefore, Christians must be exhorted to give for new and right reasons. And this is why the New Testament exhorts Christians to give to the poor, to give to the church, to give to the ministry, to give to ministers, because we typically don't if we don't have to. That's the reason. That's, that cleared up Luther's confusion. So we need new and right reasons to give. Lots of money is not proof of the truthfulness of a religion. And a little money given for the right reasons is worth more to God than a lot of money given for the wrong reasons. Now, you'll remember at the end of December, 
if you were here, I preached a New Year's vision sermon for All Saints Church. If you haven't heard that, please go online and listen to it because I was basically talking about who we are as a church and where we're going in the new year. What are some of our short-term and long-term goals? And I would encourage you to listen to that. Uh, And I mentioned in that sermon that one of the things that our church, and like in the book of Revelation, Jesus would come to the churches and he would say, you know, this you're doing really well and this you're not doing so well. And I think All Saints Church, there's a lot of things Jesus would say to us, you know, this you're doing really well and there's other things he would say, this you're not doing really well. I mentioned in that sermon that one of the things that we're weak on in this church is giving. And I mean giving in general, giving to the church. Um, Not just giving according to verse 6 here, but just giving in general. And I also say this in general because there is exceptions as well. There, There is real and beautiful giving that happens at All Saints Church. But in general, we're weak. And this is a good and a bad sign. It's a good sign because what that means is there's no simony in our church, and that's good, and I'm glad. It's a bad sign because it shows that as a, as a community, we haven't yet grasped the perspective that the New Testament wants us to have on giving. Why should we give as Christians? And there's a lot of things that we can say, and I'm not going to say it all today. I'll just briefly mention uh, some large and overarching reasons, and then I'll narrow it into some practical reasons. And first of all, we primarily give, and we should give as Christians, not to be saved, of course, but because we love God. That should be why we give. That's the main reason why we give, because we love God. We love him for first loving us. We love him for what he has given to us. And all giving is ultimately done Uh, for his glory, according to the Bible, or it should be. And uh, it should be ultimately given to God as an act of worship and an act of thanksgiving for what he has done for us. So that's the main kind of large overarching reason why we should give, because of love for God. And another overarching reason we should give is because uh, we have an example in God of giving, that God himself gave. And we are to imitate God in that, that God looked towards the needs of others and God gave. And that's one of the reasons why Paul exhorts to giving in the book of 2 Corinthians. He says, remember that God and Christ, even though Christ was rich, he became poor so that we might become rich. And he's exhorting them, you should also look to the needs of others and give of yourself so that uh, they can be taken care of as well. So because we love God, and want to worship him and give him thanks, we should give. And because we have an example in Christ, we should give. And here are some more narrow reasons why we should give. And I mentioned earlier that it's because it's profitable and proper to give. Why share, according to verse 6, all good things with the one who teaches? Well, first of all, as I said, it's profitable. That is, you value the teaching and you see that as important and you want to see it continue and it cannot continue without giving. Now, an objection might be made. Wait a minute, what do you mean it can't continue without giving? What about Paul? Uh, Paul himself, doesn't he say that he chose not to receive gifts? And so if Paul could do it and the word of God could continue being preached without giving, then isn't that a false claim that the the preaching can't continue without giving? And it is true that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul explains that he has the right 
to receive uh, support, but that he waived it on many occasions, and that's true. But it, this is the important thing that is often not seen, and that is that when Paul waived his right for giving, uh, for receiving gifts, uh, he didn't do that all the time. And there's many examples in the New Testament when Paul did receive support, and he primarily didn't receive support when he was evangelizing, and he didn't want to hinder the gospel, and he didn't want people who he's speaking to and sharing the gospel, he didn't want them to not believe in him and his message because they would think that he's just doing it for money. And in Paul's day, people who went out and taught, there was philosophers who would travel around and teach, and they would do that for money. They would do that for services. And so they actually had a reputation uh, for going and just, just teaching whatever so that they could get money. And Paul didn't want to do that. He wanted to give the gospel free of charge. That's what was, that was his desire, free of charge, so that people would not be turned away from the gospel. But did he receive support from the churches? Absolutely he did. In fact, as I said in the book of 1 Corinthians, he tells them how he waived that right so that people would come to faith. In the book of 2 Corinthians, when, people, when the Corinthians are questioning his apostleship, he says, I'm sorry I mistreated you guys so badly when I was first with you. I robbed other churches so that I didn't have to be a burden to you. Right? <laughs> sorry about that. Because they're listening to these other teachers who were getting money from them and things. And so he was receiving support, just not from the Corinthians at the time, but from outside. And turn to uh, Philippians chapter 4, in verse 15, Philippians 4, 15 to 17. Really, this latter part of Philippians chapter 4, you can study it on your own, and talks a lot about this support, this giving. And Linda, you actually quoted from it earlier. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Look at verse 15 of Philippians 4. He says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. That kind of sounds like the common thing, isn't it? That's like Luther described, you know, when the righteousness of faith is preached, giving drops to near disappearance. So this is not a new phenomenon at all. It happened in the first century also. And verse 16, For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. You see, giving is profitable. And it needs to happen for the ministry of the word to continue. It has to happen uh, for the ministry of the word to continue. A spirit-filled community values the ministry of the word and knows that our lives depend upon hearing of the word of God. True? Our lives depend upon hearing of the word of God. And so a spirit-filled community, if you look at it, what a healthy community looks like, they have a high premium on the word, and they're supporting it, and they're investing in it so it can continue. So it's profitable to give to those who teach. And here's the second reason it's right to give, and, and this is being drawn from other places in Scripture as well, that it's not only profitable, but proper to give. It's not only profitable, but proper. And this comes from Jesus who said the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's Luke 10, verse 7. And Apostle Paul, 
you know, quotes that again in another letter, but the laborer is worthy of his wages. Teaching is real work, like shoemaking. It requires long hours, and those aren't mindless hours. Um, I know, because I've worked a job where you do mindless things. You can be thinking about other things while you're putting something together or pushing a lawnmower, right? Uh, teaching is real work that is, requires long hours, and they're not mindless hours. They're intensive hours because you're constantly engaged. And it's perhaps even harder these days to teach the word than it's ever been. We have 2,000 years of noise that is built up around the Bible and the scriptures. 2,000 years of opinions, 2,000 years of heresies, and 2,000 year distance between the things that we're talking about and when they actually occurred and were written. So it's a lot of work uh, to teach. And on top of that, the task to faithfully preach the word of God is a demanding one precisely because souls are at stake and the burden therefore is heavy. I believe that there is much shame to be had upon pastors who do not work and labor in the word of God and who simply regurgitate secondhand information that they get online or read from a book. And they're not actually engaging their own minds to study the word of God. Such men should be disqualified from the ministry. Paul here, you'll notice, go back to Galatians chapter 6. He says that you're to share all good things with the one who teaches the word. That is, Paul is not talking about giving to an office for the sake of an office. He's not talking about giving to an office. You only give if the person is teaching the word. You don't give because the person is a pastor or a reverend or a bishop or has whatever title on him. So this isn't just, hey, he's got the office, give the money or give the support, but to the one who teaches the word. Now, this doesn't mean that pastors get richer and richer with each sermon that they preach. Pastoring is not meant to be a lucrative position. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says that you are not to join the pastorate to, uh, for filthy lucre's sake. This isn't about money at all. John Calvin had some wise words when it came to supporting the ministry. He saw the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church. Here's what he says, that the church should take care of the needs of a pastor or a preacher so that he can have a modest living and devote himself to the word. That's the goal. And this modest support so that the one can devote himself to the ministry does two things. First of all, it keeps the pastor clear of covetors. So when people see, hey, you know, Pastoring is a lot of work, and it doesn't get, make a lot of money. It's going to keep people away who just want it as a career. And second of all, very important, this modest support also keeps the pastor from being blackmailed by his congregation. Hey, we pay you, so you need to pay, play the tunes that we want you to play, you know? So I think Calvin has some real wise wisdom there that, yes, we need to support preachers of the gospel, and, but uh, not excessively so that they don't get covetous, and so that we don't control them. And Paul actually in Philippians chapter 4, I didn't read the next verse after the one that we, where we stopped, but he actually says, I have received uh, enough. Thank you, Philippians, for your support. I am satisfied you can stop sending support. So you, you receive what is enough uh, for a modest living, and so you can devote yourself to the preaching of the word of God. 
Chuck Swindoll says this, pastors aren't puppets to be controlled by congregations, and congregations aren't purses to be plucked by pastors. The pastor and the congregation are partners in the same ministry. The pastor shares spiritual wealth with his flock, and the flock shares their material goods with him. Pastor and flock are to look after one another. That is the idea here in Galatians 6.6. 6. So a spirit-filled community is where this mutual caring is taking place, where high value is put on the word of God. The pastor is giving the word of God, and the people are supporting that. And the word of God is being, we are hanging upon the very words of God. So that's the first uh, mark I'll draw out of this text of a spirit-filled community. They, they value and invest in the instruction of the Word of God. Now I'm going to skip over verse 7 and 8 and come back to it at the conclusion of this message. Second, look at verse 9. Here's the second mark from the text. A spirit-filled community doesn't lose heart or grow weary. A spirit-filled community doesn't lose heart or grow weary. A healthy Christian community is a vibrant courageous and indefatigable community. That is, it's a community that doesn't get fatigued. It doesn't grow weary. Paul says in verse 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. We are not scared off by trouble. We are not sapped by trials. We are not deterred by the greatness of the task. That is what a healthy community is to look like. And you'll remember that walking by the Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. And among the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions is patience, you'll see in verse 22, and faithfulness or firmness. Patience and firmness are fruits of walking by the Spirit. Paul is in this entire section in chapter 5 and 6 exhorting us believers to do good to use the freedom that we have as Christians to serve one another in love. And there is a temptation to quit. Have you ever felt that temptation to quit? <laughs> what are some of the reasons why we are tempted to quit serving one another in love? Well, one of the reasons is because before Jesus Christ returns, there is a lot to do. And we can get weary with the amount of stuff there is to do. Have you ever noticed? Maybe you've never noticed because you haven't been looking. But if you actually are looking to serve other people in love, um, you'll notice there's more, there's more things to do than you can do. Right? And so you could, and this wouldn't be a good idea, but you could completely exhaust yourself uh, by just focusing on other people. Right? And of course, you need to rest and we need to work together so people don't get exhausted. But there's a lot to do and so we could lose heart and we could grow weary. Here's another reason why we could be tempted to quit because people are often ungrateful for the things we do. Or people are offensive to us. I don't want to do good because they don't deserve it, you know? They didn't do good to me, so why should I do good to them? And we lose heart and we grow weary. So there's a lot to do. And the people we are to serve are sinners. And also, it doesn't always give us a return immediately, right? You do good, and it doesn't seem like much may come of it right away. But a spirit-filled community doesn't lose heart and endures. It is, it is able to endure, not because its members are strong 
in and of themselves. So it's not just a spirit-filled community is just full of strong people. No, that's not, that's not the issue. A spirit-filled community is strengthened to endure because they walk by the Spirit. It's because of what they fix their eyes upon that gives them the strength to serve other people in love. You take your eyes off of the truth that, it is, that is in Christ Jesus and your endurance level drops to zero or just about zero. But we're strengthened by what we fix our eyes upon. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul talks about his own experience of endurance, and he uses the very same words. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We know that Paul was probably the most spirit-filled man of all. And here's some secrets of his endurance. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, what ministry? He just was talking about in chapter 3 that we are ministers of the new covenant. That is what we are ministers of. We are not telling people they have to keep the law in order to be right with God. We are telling people of what God has done for this world and for them in Jesus Christ. We are telling them about God's grace. We are telling them about how God in his grace has saved us freely and undeservedly. We are telling them that they can have that too. And since we have this ministry of the preaching of the new covenant, salvation through the blood of Christ, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart because we see that we ourselves have been given mercy by God and our message, the nature of it, is not shape up people. Boys, we would get pretty discouraged if it was. But it's, this is God's grace and love for you. Having this ministry... We do, do not lose heart. Look at verse 7 through 9. Paul is able to say this. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. This is a powerful uh, means of endurance when you fix your eyes on the truth. And look at verse 16 through 18 of the same chapter. He says again, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Where did Paul get his endurance? He got it from where he was looking on the things that are not seen and on the fact that it doesn't matter what trials that I go through now, I have the brightest and the best future because of Christ. And you know, if you go to the book of Hebrews, don't turn there, but Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, we see that Jesus Christ himself also endured hardship precisely because of what he was looking at as well. And it says that he endured the cross and despised the shame because of the joy that was set before him. We can serve sinners, brothers and sisters, and not grow weary 
because of the nature of the message that we believe. Because God has served us even though we were sinners. And we're not serving people because they're worthy. And we can also not grow weary because we can fix our eyes on the hope that we have, that we have the brightest future of all. Our well-being doesn't depend upon our circumstances on this earth. We are safe in God's hands and he's leading us to eternal life. So considering this gospel, we ought to serve our fellow sinners tirelessly, knowing we will one day reap eternal life. Now, back in Galatians chapter 6, I don't believe that Paul is saying that if we serve, we will reap, but let us serve because we will reap. And we'll talk about verse 7 and 8 in just a moment. But it's not do good so you can reap eternal life, but let us serve because in due time we will reap eternal life. Thirdly, from the text, a spirit-filled community reaches out to those who are outside the community. And look at verse 10. That is, a healthy Christian community reaches out and an unhealthy Christian community doesn't reach out. If a, if a Christian community isn't reaching out to those outside of it, then that's a sign that it's not walking in the spirit. It's, it's not a healthy Christian community. Look at verse 10, verse, verse 10 the first part. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And he makes a distinction between all people and the Christians. A spirit-filled community that is walking by the Spirit sees life as it truly is and does not become insular and fold in on itself. But like Christ, it looks outward to serve the lost. As Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. And a spirit-filled community at seeing things the way God sees is going to be outward-looking and is going to search for those who are lost. One of the fruits of the Spirit is love. Love is looking out for and caring for the needs of others. And that's one of the fruits of walking by the Spirit. And who, let me ask, is in greater need of those who are not Christians? Who is in greater need than those who are outside the faith? Can you think of anybody who is in greater need? doesn't matter how great your need may be, and it may be great, and we shouldn't ignore it. Their need is more. One thing that stuck with me, stuck with me for years, is a dear friend of mine back in New Brunswick, a pastor, and he once asked me, Eli, what's worse than being lost? And I said, what's worse than being lost? There's nothing worse than being lost. I can't think of anything worse than being lost. And he said, being lost and nobody looking for you. He said, that's the worst. That's worse than being lost. While we have opportunity, Paul says, while we have time, there's a book we have in the bookstore here by Mark Cahill. It's called One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. Have you ever heard of that book or read it? One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. What's the one thing you can't do in heaven, according to Cahill? Share the gospel. You can't share the gospel with people because everyone's saved and you don't need to tell anybody to know the Lord. They'll all know him from the least to the greatest. You can't reach out anymore. Imagine your, our time for evangelizing ends when we die and, it, and we don't get any more chances to share the gospel with people in eternity. This is our only chance to do that. Now Cahill wasn't fully correct. Because actually, you can't do any good deed to the lost in eternity. Because in eternity, we're separated from them forever. You remember, Jesus 
told the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man just wanted Lazarus to put some water on his tongue, and he couldn't because there's a separation. Dear brothers and sisters, our only opportunity to serve those who are outside the fold is now. One other way we could read verse 10 is that not only while we have time before eternity, but as opportunities arise, and there are certainly opportunities all around us to serve. So a spirit-filled community, a healthy Christian community like Christ is outward-looking, is serving those who are lost, not just our own, welcoming and inviting them in because they are in the greatest of all need. Fourthly, from verse 10 again, a spirit-filled community rightly knows itself to be a family. A spirit-filled community rightly knows itself to be a family. And that's what he says here in verse 10. While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And he calls the church here a household. He calls the church a household. Now, we often think of the church as the body of Christ. We often think of the church as the bride of Christ. Do we think of the church as a household? That, that, that is, we're living, we're living together as a family. That's what household means. The family. And it's a big family. According to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says that he bows his knee to God the Father, um, of whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. So we are, as Christians, a part of a very big family, aren't we, Kitty? The whole family, even those in heaven. The word family in Greek is patria. Notice the connection with the father. The word family, uh, patria, indicates that we have the same father. All Christians are family because we share the same father, the one who begot us and the one that we know as father and call Abba Father through Jesus Christ. And only Christians know him as father. And what does he say the, the household is of in verse 10? The household of what? Of faith. Notice the emphasis on faith again and again in the book of Galatians. The family of faith. This is why we're family. And this is interestingly uh, contrasted with a familiar term or phrase that was used, and probably Paul used it himself before he was a Christian, in Judaism. They called the Jewish community the household or the family of law. They actually called them that. And you can, you can read it in ancient texts dug up in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They actually used this phrase, the household of law. And so Paul says that it's not the household of law that binds us together. It's not because we're all obedient to the commandments that binds us together. It's because we all have a common faith in Jesus Christ and we all know the Father through Jesus Christ by faith alone. And so we are a family. No Christian, no Christian is a stranger or a foreigner in this community. Amen? No Christian is a stranger or a foreigner. And a spirit-filled community sees it this way and relates to one another as family. And when we're not doing that, it's not because we're not family, it's because we're not walking by the Spirit. Because when we walk by the Spirit, we see that we're not the only ones up there in Christ at the right hand of the Father, but so is all my fellow brothers and sisters as well. 
Paul tells us here that our duty to our family is, in fact, greater than our duty to the common man, which is, of course, enormous, our duty to the common man. And this is actually a fact everyone recognizes. You don't need to be a Christian. Your duty to your family is greater than your duty to your common man. Calvin comments, There are duties which we owe to all men arising out of a common nature, but the tie of a more sacred relationship established by God himself binds us to other believers. So just reflect on your own experience as a Christian. Uh, Do you see other Christians as family? Do you see them that way? And do you relate to them that way? Because if you don't, uh, then you're not walking by the Spirit. And if you do, then you will see them that way. So there are four marks um, of the uh, Spirit-filled community. What does that look like from this text. Um, A spirit-filled community values and invests in the instruction of the Word of God. A spirit-filled community doesn't lose heart or grow weary. A spirit-filled community reaches out to those who are outside the community. And a spirit-filled community rightly knows itself to be a family. And I'd like now to just conclude by returning to verse 7 and 8, which I believe is a parenthesis in the flow of thought. 7 and 8 is triggered by verse 6, but it's not a um, simple explanation of verse 6. It's not that he goes from verse 6 to verse 7 and 8 to explain verse 6. But something in verse 6 triggers the thought of verse 7 and 8, which, as I said, I believe is a parenthesis. After verse 8, he kind of flows back into the overall theme of doing good and serving one another in love. And what Paul says in verse 7, first of all, he lays down a spiritual axiom. God is not mocked. That's a spiritual axiom. That is something that is true and cannot be changed. God is not mocked. Now we might read that and look around our world and say, what do you mean God isn't mocked? Every time I turn on the television or the radio or walk down the street or go go to a coffee shop, I hear people behind me mocking God. And it seems like he is, but he isn't. Because everything a man sows, he will reap. This is Paul's point. God is not mocked. Everything that a man sows, he will reap. That is an axiom. That is the way God uh, will deal with us, and he is not mocked. You can't snub your nose at that. You can't pretend that's not going to happen. You can't act like that's not going to happen. Those that are mocking God are just making themselves look stupid. And the words of those mockers and those who laughed with them will turn into gravel in their mouths one day. And they'll realize they weren't mocking God at all. They were actually making fools of themselves. We reap what we sow. This is the axiom. God is not mocked. What a man sows, that will he reap. Now some Some people say, okay, I know this is a true axiom that what a man sows he will reap. That's a true principle, but the good news of the gospel is that Christ, uh, we sowed sin and Christ is the one who reaped for us so that we don't have to reap the destruction of our sin. And some people will say that, yeah, true principle, but doesn't apply to us because Christ delivered us from that axiom and we're not going to reap what we sowed. And of course that's a true thought. Of course that's true. Uh, 
There is a principle that we deserve damnation and death, but we won't get it because of what Christ has done for us, taking our place, delivering us from that. So that's true, but that is not Paul's point here. Paul's point is not to lay down a principle and then say, and you've been delivered from it. Paul's point is to lay down a perennial principle that what a man sows, that man will reap. And he's also referring to everyone, Christians included. Verse 6, Paul made a statement about teachers, which I believe brought Paul back to the issue in Galatia over false teachers. And he's now thinking about false teachers in verse 7 and 8 and true teachers. Or he's thinking about true teaching and false teaching. And he, in verse 6, of course, exhorts them to value and invest in those who are teaching the true gospel. But then he warns them that watch out for what you're valuing, what you're investing in, what you're listening to. Are you valuing and investing in the teaching of the flesh or in the teaching of the Spirit? Because all men, in a sense, are sowers, and there's only two ways that you can sow. You're, we're all sowers, whether we realize it or not, and we are all either sowing to the flesh or we are sowing to the Spirit. And although we have been talking in this larger section about sowing and reaping in our daily lives and how this principle applies in our daily lives. That is, if I walk by the Spirit, I'll grow the fruit of the Spirit. And if I walk by the flesh, I'll grow the, the works of the flesh. I don't believe Paul in, this, in these two verses here, and, and specifically in verse 8, is talking about merely our daily lives now and how walking in the Spirit will produce good fruit in our daily lives. But he's talking about something that is ultimate. He's talking about decisive, the decisive seed time and harvest in this verse. And that what we choose to put our faith in determines our eternal destiny. This is what I believe Paul is saying here. Every person is a farmer and we all must choose what we are going to sow. But in another sense, every person is also a seed or that which is sown. And what is sown is ourselves when we die. The Bible talks about this, uh, our death in this way as sowing and reaping. Have you ever noticed that, how the Bible talks about our death as sowing and reaping? You ever notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul's talking about the resurrection of the dead, he says, what is sown is sown in dishonor, but what is raised is raised in honor. What is sown is corruptible, but what is raised is raised incorruptible. And I believe this is what Paul's talking about here. That in our lifetime, our lifetime is our seed time, our resurrection is our harvest. There's only two kinds of people in this world. Those who sow to the flesh and those who sow to the Spirit in an ultimate and decisive sense. Those who die trusting in Christ or those who die trusting in themselves. Those who listen to the teaching of the gospel and those who listen to the false teachers and the teachers of self-righteousness. And therefore, there's only two kinds of harvests. There's corruption, according to verse 8, or destruction. And there's eternal life. And those are our only two options. We sow to the flesh and we reap destruction. And we sow to the Spirit. 
by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, and we reap eternal life. If you haven't put your trust in Christ, you are a farmer sowing to the flesh, and you will reap corruption. If you, if you uh, have not believed in him, I beg of you to do so today, because today may be your last. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you can rejoice with certainty that you have eternal life, that though you're sown in dishonor, you will be raised in incorruption and honor through Christ. And Paul's overarching point in this section is this. Since we live by the Spirit, that is, we have sown to the Spirit as Christians, We haven't sown to the flesh. We have believed the truth of the gospel. And since we live because of that and have eternal life because of that, let us then also in our daily lives walk the same way that we're saved and walk by the Spirit, putting our mind on the truth, remembering what it is that we believe. And in the light of the truth that's in Christ, let us serve one another and do good to all. And I think this is Paul's ultimate point in Galatians 5 and 6. Hey, we're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by the Spirit. We're saved by trusting in Christ. Let's also walk this way and do good to all. So in closing, may we as the Christian community, as the community of the Spirit, may we be a Spirit-filled community for the good of all men and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth that sets us free. Thank you for your wise instruction given through Paul so long ago that's so relevant to us today. I pray, Lord, that you take the scriptures that were shared today and, Lord, that you would embed it in our hearts and minds and change us, challenge us, show us where we are not thinking rightly, Lord. Show us where we need to change our thinking and show us uh, what it means to walk by the Spirit and to live a life bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Please help us to become that kind of a community here for for the good of others and for your name's sake. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.